Welcome to episode 9 of the Burning Life Podcast. My name is Adam and I'm your host on the podcast where we discover birds and the birders that pursue them. One of the biggest requested topics that people have asked for on this podcast is for birding locations. In this episode, we won't only be speaking about one destination, but we'll be chatting about two amazing birding destinations. Adam Riley will be giving us the lowdown on Magnoni Private Game Reserve and its impressive birding. Melissa Howes Whitecross from BirdLife South Africa will be chatting to us about Vakastrum, one of many people's favorite birding destinations. Gunnar Englum from Peru will be telling us what he has been getting up to during his country's long lockdown and sharing a bit of his musical side with us. But before we chat to today's guests, let's catch up with birding news from the Southern African region. I had a call from Charlie from Carcliffe Conservancy. He let me know that at the moment there are large flocks of cranes in the afternoon at the heights. Blue crane, grey crown crane and the critically endangered wattle crane are all showing in good numbers. If you are able to travel to the Conservancy, head over to their Facebook page and get details of how you can book to spend some time in the heights. I spoke last week about the abdom stalk that was seen on Pennington on the KwaZulu-Natal south coast last week. This stork must be a golfer because it has decided to travel up the coast and has been seen over the last week at the Bluff Golf Course on the south of Durban, allowing those in the Durban Metropole to get to twitch the special bird. The team from Better Birding have done some really great webinars on a whole range of subjects. They've been a bit quiet lately, but I'm excited to let you know that on Wednesday the 17th of June at half past seven, they are back with a webinar on pelagic birding. If you'd like to register for this, I will post a link in the comments section of this podcast. And for more information, simply head over to the Better Birding Facebook page. If you have any news from the world of birding, either as a bird club or as an individual, please drop me an email at adam.birdinglifesa at gmail.com and I will consider featuring it on the show. Tonight's first guest was also a guest on last week's show, Adam Riley the founder and owner of Rock Jumper Birding Tours. Tonight, he is going to chat about a stunning birding destination, Magnoni Private Game Reserve. Okay, Adam, I want to welcome you again. Um, you had some interesting lockdown birding. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, yeah, so I'm fortunate enough to be a shareholder in a lodge called Zebra Hills in the Magnoni Game Reserve, which is a 23,000 hectare private game reserve with Big Five in Zululand that, that lies between Lihui and Makuzi um, to the west of the freeway. And when they um, proposed this lockdown, we decided, well, this is a perfect opportunity to spend originally three weeks, which turned into five weeks of level five in the bush. So we packed our family up and off we, we went to, to Zululand. And um, I decided also to participate in the uh, Bird Lasser Lockdown Birding Challenge. So I had a bit of a mission during my three weeks that turned into five weeks to see how many bird species I could find on, on the game reserve. And it, it was actually quite a, quite a fun challenge. Uh, there were about over 12 or 1400 people actually entered this birding challenge in South Africa. For much, much of the way, I was, I was actually leading the challenge. Right at the end, a chap in the, the Timbavati and Kruger area just overtook me, but I ended up seeing 260 bird species uh, during the challenge the five weeks of lockdown, also 35 mammal species, and, and we had some amazing uh, experiences. 
the highlight of, of the whole five weeks though, was finding a Vambo Sparrowhawk in our game reserve. And this was the first record in 30 years uh, in KZN. And uh, I saw an adult and then a couple of other birders on the reserve also saw adult. And then one of the rangers on the reserve actually photographed a juvenile. So we think they are resident and have actually bred on our reserve. I added another bird as well to our reserve list, which now stands at 412, which was black rump button quail. But one of the fun things was actually seeing, you know, with the lockdown starting 27th of March, uh, picking up the, the tail end of the migration and starting to get some of the winter birds coming into the reserve. So, so it was a, a really interesting transition time um, during those five weeks. Well, you got just a few more birds than me eh, in my garden. <laughs> We're not a bad place to bird. So a lot of people, like I said in the last, a couple of episodes ago, are looking for locations to bird and lockdown's going to end sometime. So Manyoni means place of the birds. Can you tell us about Manyoni Private Game Reserve? Yeah, sure. As, as I mentioned, it's 23,000 hectares, so pretty significant area. It has the big five as well as wild dogs. They actually currently got uh, pups at the moment. They're denning. The, the biggest... Uh, cheetah population of any private game reserve in South Africa and all, all, all the other typical wildlife. We, we also have uh, a pangolin project on the go at the moment and we have four pangolin in the reserve which you can actually see now because they have uh, radio trackers on them. Um, so that's, that's wonderful having, having them reintroduced back into the reserve but Every single animal that ever occurred naturally in the area is there, including uh, good, healthy populations of black and white rhino and elephant, etc. The bird list, as I mentioned, is 412 species. You know, a lot of the typical Zululand specials like uh, pink throat, twin spot is common, gorgeous bush shrike is, is absolutely abundant, eastern nicotor, radzipalus. A um, little bit harder is, is African broadbill, but we do have uh, several territories. And then your usual, usual bushveld species like burnt neck eremomelas and yellow-bellied eremomelas. And we also get several of the northern bushveld species whose ranges actually end in Manyoni. So we got the most southern breeding uh, red-headed weavers. We've got a resident population of Bennett's woodpeckers. We've got breeding and resident uh, dark-chanting goshawks, at least two or three pairs. Stealings wren warbler. We've had grey-headed kingfisher nesting on the reserve every now and then. And yeah, a bunch of, of other pretty hard birds, if, if you're keeping a KZN list, uh, um, magpie shrike, red-crested, busted, etc., all, all occur there. And then because we actually go into the hills going inland, and we have a very large river called the Mzindus, which doesn't flow very often, but it has wonderful forests along its banks, we, we get quite a lot of montane species uh, or misspelled forest species coming into our reserve. Things like Cape Battis and Sui Waxbill and, and Nisna Turaco all get recorded uh, fairly regularly down the riverbeds, especially in winter and in transition uh, time of year. You touched on a little bit, but what are some of the habitats that make up the reserve? It's mostly bushveld on rolling hills, some areas of a little bit more open grassland, then a lot of mixed woodlands with uh, marula trees, etc. Then in the south, we get very rocky mountain habitats, uh, you know, birds like striped pipit and cape rock thrush and mocking cliff chat resident in the rocky areas, freckled nightjar, 
things like that. And then along the, the rivers, we, we have some indigenous uh, lowland forests as well as um, fever tree forests. If someone was planning a trip to Manioni, what is the best time of the year as a birder to visit the reserve? Pretty much as, as everywhere else in, in Southern Africa, outside of uh, the Southwestern Cape, uh, September through to December is probably best, but you can have fantastic birding any time of year. As, as you can see, I basically had, uh, was there for the month of April and had 260 bird species. So, so any time of year is good. Uh, after Christmas, the cuckoos and, and some of the birds are calling less, but you, you get really interesting water birds coming in. If it's a good uh, wet year, things like African crake and corn crake, black kukuls. And, you know, we even get um, monotonous lark most years coming to the reserve. Um, so some, some really interesting birds uh, coming through in the latter part of summer, dusky larks as well. Um, winter, we is not as birdy as summer, but there's always enough uh, resident species and a few winter migrants that bolster those populations. And that's a lot of reserves. The field guides are more geared towards those that are looking for the big five. So if somebody comes along who is a birder and comes to Magnoni, how experienced are the guides at finding birds? So we got two of our guides at our large zebra hills are, are particularly experienced and passionate birders. So, so we have a, a Zulu chap, his name is Wonderboy Gumbi, who's absolutely fantastic. Um, he comes from just north of the reserve. He's a top-notch birder now. Our, our head ranger, Johan Pretorius, is also an, an excellent birder. He, he did a lot of this lockdown challenge with me and also went out on his own. And he was just a few birds short of me. But we have quite a few bird guides on the reserve, guides that are keen on their birds. In fact, eight out of the top 12 on the South African lockdown challenge were all on, on the Manioni Reserve. So there's a lot of interest in guides and, and staff on the reserve on birding, which, which helps a lot because we all keep in contact and share sightings. And you know, whenever there's a rare or unusual bird gets picked up, we, we have a birding group. Last year, one of the chaps uh, picked up a golden pipit and that hung around for quite a few weeks and hundreds and hundreds of birders came through and, and saw it. But, uh, you know, we've had some, some really good vagrants, green sandpiper last year as well. And um, there's always interesting birds around. For those who wish to use Manioni as a base for a birding trip, what other birding locations are around in the area? Um, so as day trips, uh, you could easily do Makuzi Game Reserve. You could head up to Pongola Game Reserve. You could do St. Lucia. It's a bit of a long day trip, but it, it could be done. And then some of the sort of wetland sites like Muzi Pan and areas for Pink Road, Long Claw, etc. And Nimbela Peninsula to the north of, of Lake St. Lucia. There's a, a lot of birding areas to, to visit around, but you know, whilst you're in the reserve, it's, it's well worth just spending your time in the reserve because it's not only the birds, but the, the game sightings are, are phenomenal. I mean, the, the lion sightings we get are just out of this world. We have a lot of lion action, great elephants and rhino and cheetah and things like that. How can people make contact with you if they want to find out more information about Manioni or about Zebra Hills Lodge? Yeah, they're welcome to contact me on adam at rockjumpergroup.com. You can also go to our website, which is uh, zebrahills.com. Thanks, Adam. I will post all the links in the comments section below, so be sure to check out Manyoni Private Game Reserve and Zebra Hills Safari Lodge. 
So move over the Rolling Stones and Maroon 5 because there's a new hit on the horizon. All the way from Peru, I'm excited to introduce Gunnar Enblom. Not only is he an amazing birder and guide, but he is also part of a band. So before we chat to him, let's hear a snippet of Bird Party, the song about a birder named Johnny. from Peru, I want to welcome Gunnar Engblom onto the show. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here, Adam. Okay, so Gunnar, I read Noah Stricker's book, Birding Without Borders, a few years ago, and I want to read a story that was in the book. The story basically follows a paragraph where Noah speaks about the fact that you uh, moved from Sweden to Peru, and he speaks about one of these stories, and I'm going to read an excerpt out the book right now. And this is what it says. Once in the early days, following patchy information, he took a public bus across the Andes and found himself escorted off by armed guerrillas at a checkpoint. This was serious. Two British birders had been just been captured and executed by Sandero Luminoso soldiers. Their bodies never recovered, and kidnappings were common at the time. Gunnar crouched on the side of the road explained that he was broke and just looking for birds. They pointed at my binoculars and they demanded for me to hand them over, he told me. But they were nice binoculars and I didn't want to lose them. So I said no, but they could have my camera, which was basically a piece of... I told them it was really a valuable camera, then I donated to their cause as a supporter. After a lengthy interrogation, the guerrillas became baffled by the Swedish man's babbling about birds in accented Spanish that they just let him go. The best part, Gunnar said, I was wearing a t-shirt that day of Che Guevara, the Marxist revolutionary instrumental in the Cuban revolution. Just imagine. Are you as extreme as Noah makes you out to be? Uh, well, I, I mean, this was hardcore uh, birding that time when I went with Noah. And if people had read the book also would notice that we had our share of problems with the uh, 
you know, cars breaking down and roads being cut off, etc. But it was February, which is the rainy season in Peru, and it's a very hard time to uh, to uh, to bird. And it was a twenty four seven birding thing. I'm pretty resilient, and uh, I think Trevor mentioned that also in the, in the podcast that you did with him. I can go on and on and on birding for a long time, but uh, frankly, most of the times nowadays when I do birding tours, I'm actually much more relaxed tours and i appreciate of having time to see the birds etc etc but it came to a point where actually noah was uh, had had a hard time keeping up uh, even though it's only half my age so <laughs> i guess it's all that marathon running that i'm doing i i, I should add also that uh, there is a little bit of artistic freedom there on part of uh, uh, on noah's side he got it a little bit mixed up. I had a pair of binoculars, uh, which were, they were taking in water. So it was the other way around. I donated my binoculars to the revolutionary cause of the shining path in Peru. And I kept on to my Nikon FM2 that I had just bought uh, quite expensively back in Sweden. <laughs> so it was the other way around. And uh, the... That is an urban myth with the Che Guevara T-shirt. I did not have that. I think it was, uh, it could have been a, a British bird of Colin Bushell that coined that that rumor about me many years ago. And and I think I mentioned it to to Noah saying that this is not true, but it, it's too good of a story not to include in the book, I think. So <laughs> I eventually got off the uh, hook though from those Shining Path people was that uh, by um, by giving that uh, donation with the uh, con- convincing them that it was a good idea to have the camera because back in those days there was no uh, obviously no digital cameras they would have to go to the lab and imagine if they wanted to get their uh, the photos of uh, of their execution of policemen developed in the camera store that wouldn't be so smart so <laughs> they uh, they went for the binoculars in the end so, Gura, over this lockdown period, I think you guys have been seven weeks in lockdown in Peru. I saw earlier on Facebook one of your little videos about the kind of thing that you're facing at the moment. So, you've been doing a series of webinars during this lockdown period. Can you tell us a little, a little bit about these webinars? Yeah, so I, I have um, for a long time been thinking that birding is so much more than this hardcore thing. Yeah, I, I, I think... People are getting more and more interested in in birds, but they're getting in from another angle. So that's what I've been uh, putting forward in these webinars. People are now more into aesthetics. It's the uh, right brain half sort of thing that gets you uh, see the beauty of things rather than the analytical left-hand part of the brain that is sort of responsible for the fine uh, details of identification and keeping a list and so forth, the scientific part, the logical part. If you change your concept in what you offer to uh, the public a little bit more on the aesthetics and more about taking photographs, more about uh, seeing the beauty of the birds and not maybe not so much about the little brown jobs, which I like as well. I mean, I am a hardcore birder, but if you look at it in the future and if you want to cash in on on the uh, new interest of that is uh, prevalent, um, then uh, looking into other models uh, is a good idea. So I've been presenting some of the stuff that we're doing with Colibri Expeditions, my company, and, and, and the 
offshoot of Colibri expeditions that I called Seven Wonders Birding. What we have been doing for uh, get into a new market share, find a new niche into bird watching tourism. And so that's a little bit what these webinars are about. And there are some practical tips that other operators can can uh, use as well. And maybe also for people who have never been on a birding tour before, realize that are, there are other ways of doing birding tours. And uh, there could be a birding tour for almost everyone, every kind of person, even birding tours for non-birders, which sounds maybe a bit crazy, but maybe there's a birder in all of us. Uh, just have to come out of the closet. Okay, so most people would know that you're a birder, um, but what they might not know about you is that you also have a musical side. So can you tell us a little bit about this side of you? Yeah, well, it's actually started a long time ago in, in Sweden. I, it was, uh, I had started... I've always been a sort of interested in music. I grew up on rock and roll with my mom playing Elvis records. So uh, I was a big Elvis fan in my, in, my, in my childhood and in my early teens. And then sort of got in, into eventually into the sort of punk rock scene as well. And so by uh, 1979, I started to go into the Stockholm subway and play in the subway basking. And eventually that sort of grew into my main income during my college years. And also while I was doing, started working as a guide in between um, the tours that I went to the Mediterranean, working as a nature guide, I was going down the subway playing my songs. I, I did a song about bird watching that was published. And we actually made a record of that with my band, Giran Giran. And that was back in 1989. I think we recorded a song called Mestog, which basically is feeding flock in Swedish. And the idea of the song was during a birding trip in 1986-87. I was a fresh birder by then. I only birded by three years. And I did a birding trip in Venezuela. And uh, we were waiting for feeding flocks, bird parties. And uh, so the idea of the song was waiting for a bird party. That I translated into Swedish, it became a Swedish songs. And uh, about six, seven years ago, I translated that song uh, before I attended the biggest week in the US for the first time. I translated it into English and I was performing it there just with the acoustic guitar. And then four years ago, I, I got my band together again, the guy that was playing with me the first demos that we did back in 1986, 87. And he, uh, I asked him whether he was interested in, you know, doing something again over, you know, over Facebook. We had reconnected after a long time. We recorded again after more than 20 years. And he did all the instruments on this uh, bird party song. Uh, and which uh, I now put out a video for. Yeah, so... Bird Party must be the hit birding song of 2020. I mean, move over the Rolling Stones and Justin <laughs> Bieber and all the wannabes. It's got to be a bird, a bird Party. So it's a song all about Johnny the Birder. So tell us a little about the song and was it inspired by a true story or, yeah, tell us a little about the song. So uh, the uh, lyrics follows pretty much the English version, yeah. So, uh, sorry, the Swedish version. One of the features in the song is uh, a twitch for a ivory gull. I did that back in Sweden in, in, uh, 
85 or so, 84, 85, my first Twitch ever, and I dipped. <laughs> I didn't see it. I still have not seen an ivory gold. So I needed to put that into the English version as well. And so, so that's in the English version. And about the time when, when I was birding at, uh, with these uh, Stockholm birders in Venezuela in 1986, 87, when the idea to the song came, there was someone that passed along a, a newspaper clip with an article about Lee Evans in the UK. He was married, but he, now he was divorced. And it was basically because of his birding. So that's also part of the song, both in the Swedish and the English version. So it's a little bit built together around those stories. The other thing in Swedish, the Swedish title is Mes Tog, and that means tit train, literally. And it's about how the tits move around in the, um, in the forest, in the winter, foraging together. Uh, but the word Mes is also a sort of um, slang for nerd. In Swedish, so a, a tit train. Uh, well, at least back then, it was quite nerdy to be a bird watcher. So, so that, that's a little bit of the funny side of, uh, of of the song as well. And in the Swedish version, was about a bird named Lars, and everybody knows that every birder in in Sweden is called Lars something, right? So the short for for Lars in Swedish is Lasse. So Johnny Johnny John in Swedish was Lasse. And uh, my second name is Lars as well. So there you go. Almost every birder is called Lars or Lasse. And so having a, a, an English equivalent to Lars, uh, I looked through all my contacts in Facebook and I, I came down to that most birders were either called John or David. And I just had to pick one of them. And since I was brought up on rock and roll, well, Johnny Be Good sounded quite nice. So it, it came down to Johnny. There you go. So, Gunnar, um, how can people get their hands on the song? The song is on Bandcamp. And that now what I've done is that I wanted to get it onto all the other digital platforms. So it's on iTunes. It hasn't been released yet on iTunes, but it'll be any day now. But it's on Spotify and on um, Apple Music and, and uh, Google Play and all those big ones. Uh, you can find it there. And then uh, as it was launched last Sunday, uh, I wanted to put this video together. So now you find the video also on YouTube. And so just search Bird Party and the name of the band is Guran Guran and you'll find it there. Thanks Gunnar. I must say, I really enjoyed chatting to you. I can't wait to have a chat again soon. Like all the guests, all the links are in the comments section below. I want to welcome our final guest to the show tonight, Melissa Howes-Whitegrass from BirdLife South Africa. She is an amazing conservationist and a really inspiring person to talk to. So get ready for part one of the interview that I did with her about Vakastrim. So welcome, Melissa, to the show. It's really good to have you on the show. I know we've been setting this interview up for quite a while, so welcome. Thank you so much, Adam, and thanks for this opportunity. Really looking forward to chatting grasslands with you. Okay, Melissa, there's a whole lot of areas of conservation that you could have gone into. And I just was thinking, you know, when you look at these guys who do leopards and lions and elephants, it's almost like glamorous. And let me say it's a lot more sexy than birds. What made you decide to get into bird conservation? 
<laughs> yeah, the the big and fairies always do attract a lot of attention. So I've been a I've been fascinated with birds my whole life. My parents always like to joke that I could make the garden bird calls like crested barbet and African hoopoe before I actually said my first word. So I think birds have always been intrinsically ingrained in who I am. And uh, as I grew up, I spent many a holiday going to Kruger with a field guide open on my lap and my parents' enormous binoculars draped around my neck, watching the birds and just really developing a love for, for all of the bush, but very much for birds. And so when I ultimately ended up doing my PhD at WITS, um, I studied savannah ecology. I didn't actually study birds, which a lot of people don't know about me. Um, I was working on tree phenology and trying to understand the seasonal differences of tree growth in relation to rainfall. And when I finished my PhD, I had the opportunity to intern at BirdLife South Africa. And I was very lucky to get that opportunity, which gave me a toe into the door of this amazing conservation organization that is BirdLife South Africa. And so I worked very, very hard to weld my passion for birds with my sort of ecology background. And I was very lucky to be offered a full-time job at the end of my internship. And so in 2018, I started out as the raptors and large terrestrial birds conservation manager. And the beginning of this year, I've stepped up to now manage our entire terrestrial landscape conservation program. So that's focusing on all of our land bird um, conservation across South Africa. So it's been a, a rapid journey, but I'm very, very blessed to be where I am today and to be able to work in conservation with a good focus on birds that I love so much. I remember we did a bit of birding with you just in a while ago and you spoke about the, you know, how you started to understand the, the relationship on a greater level between between trees and birds. And I think by starting in, you know, trees and that kind of area, I think you must have a great understanding of the, the connection between them. I know we obviously, we know birds sit in trees on a basic level, but I think that relationship probably goes a lot deeper than, than just the way a lot of birders know it. And yeah, how do you think your, your background has probably helped you in terms of where you are now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, birds, the wonderful thing about birds is that they are great environmental indicators because so many of them are so specialized and tuned into very specific aspects of the environment around them. If you think of something like a, a greater painted snipe, they are selecting very specific wetland conditions that they are found in. And if you can start to unlock some of those relationships, um, when it comes to the conservation of the species itself, that is absolute gold, because if we're not conserving the right types of environmental conditions, we're not going to be able to put in conservation strategies that are actually going to be meaningful and help those species. And obviously coming from a, an ecology background where I was taught to look at the entire ecosystem, not just the birds or the trees, building those links really does make a, a really strong conservation approach. And so I'm very lucky that I could, could bring those two together in my work. And for somebody who's listening is just a birder, how, how do you think they can grow in that area in terms of, you know, I love what you said, looking at the entire ecosystem instead of just going and looking for, for birds, but understanding how the entire ecosystem works together. Just a little example was, I spoke to you just before we went on air, find a little grassland close to us. And, and one of the areas I went through this morning, there was all this burnt grassland on the side of the road. You know, remember that the um, plainback pipits, they like that kind of environment. And there's a definite connection. So how, how can a person listening to this who might not have the background you have, how can they grow in terms of understanding ecosystems and how everything works together? What kind of advice would you give to them? Because I do think it helps people become better birders. 
Absolutely. So in your field guides, right at the beginning of your field guides, there's a, a little write-up on the, the basic ecology of South Africa. So we're very lucky in South Africa because we have this huge diversity of what they call biomes, and that's really just a broad vegetation unit. So today we're going to be talking about grasslands. So that's a, an area that's dominated by largely grasses. But if you've got forests and savannas and that sort of thing, when you go into your field guides, every single bird has a little line that says habitat next to its name. And if you can start tuning into what those specific habitat conditions are, it's going to immediately help you when you're trying to filter out what birds could potentially be found in the habitat that you are sort of birding in on the day. So from a, a getting to an ID point of view, if you can understand that little habitat line and what it's saying, is it saying broadleaf savanna, so things like your burkia trees, the wild syringa, or is it saying acacia savanna, which is your fine leaf trees, something like a, a chestnut vented tit babbler is going to occur there. So it's, it just helps you really decipher the code of where we're likely to find certain bird species, and it'll help you ID them a hell of a lot quicker. So just on a practical level, what does the life of someone working in the area of conservation look like? <laughs> busy. <laughs> yeah, it's a, a variety of things. I think I've learned a hell of a lot of different skills that I wasn't expecting. I came into this as a scientist, but when you're working in conservation, you wear many hats. Um, you have to be able to fundraise, you have to be able to write the various reports for those different donors that are very generously contributing to your projects. You have to be good at communication because you need to tell the world what you're getting up to and try and attract more attention to whatever cause you're working towards. You need to be able to engage with partners, so whether they be from other NGOs or government. Um, we do a lot of work where we try and engage government and the private sector to influence policy that will help the environment and our threatened species. And then, of course, there's lots of public awareness campaigns. So you need to get very comfortable talking to the general public and going on platforms like this one here and being able to share a bit about the work that we do. And then, of course, occasionally you get to go on some really awesome field trips to the various sites where we study rare and threatened species. Um, for instance, I was lucky enough to go on the Tide of Falcon survey last year to the Blyde River Canyon, um, which is the only known um, spot for these birds in South Africa at the moment. And so BirdLife's been involved in a monitoring project there for over 12 years. Um, and it's, it's trips like that that really do make the, the sort of day-to-day -day admin worth it, being able to get out there into the field and work with these incredible species. So in other words, you don't just bird. <laughs> well, there's a bit of atlasing wherever we go, for sure. <laughs> I, I always like to say that I, I'm always birding, no matter where I am, there's always birds around. So I try and keep an eye out for them. <laughs> I think, Melissa, one thing that BirdLife South Africa and you have done really well over this lockdown period in South Africa is the, the conservation conversations. And can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, it's really, it's, it's been a great little project and I know a lot of people have tuned in. Yeah, it really, it happened really quickly. Um, as lockdown started, our bird clubs around South Africa approached us and said, we can't get speakers in to come and chat to our clubs. Is there some way that you could possibly help us? And so I'd been doing the odd webinar using the Zoom platform here and there just to share some of my work with clubs that aren't based in Johannesburg where I live. Um, so I'd done one for the Cape Bird Club and some of the other clubs as well. And I said to Mark Anderson, our CEO, why don't we put this on a, a sort of organizational scale rather than doing the odd talks here and there every other night? let's take this, this work out there and put it out there for, for the general public and hopefully attract some attention for our work. So in the space of a week, we had launched Conservation Conversations and yeah, they're running every single Tuesday night at seven o'clock. 
we are very fortunate to have had uh, multiple evenings where we've had over 400 people tuning in and that's people from all around the world. So from an exposure point of view, it's been phenomenal. And we're really grateful to have a platform like that where we can share our work and our conservation message with new audiences and really show people the, the intricacies of the kinds of work and projects that BirdLife South Africa are doing. So Melissa, I'm really excited tonight. We can have a chat about Vakastrum and it's probably one of South Africa's best areas for birding. Vakastrum is a delightful little town. It's in Mpumalanga province of South Africa. I think one thing that makes Vakastrum quite nice, it's almost quite central in terms of, of South Africa, um, you know, from Johannesburg or from Durban and that kind of thing. Um, the town allows visitors and residents to partake of its charm, to step back in time to when life was a whole lot simpler. What's interesting, the town has only 7,000 residents. There are no traffic lights. Many of the roads are not tarred. And it's not an unusual sight to see someone riding a horse along the street. <laughs> what I also love about the town is, is it's got these awesome little shops. I mean, I remember there's a bakery there and the bread they sold. We bought one loaf, the loaf was gone. Uh, they've got this amazing little bakery, coffee shops and small little shops. Melissa, I'm sure before we even speak about the birds that you'll agree that this town is an incredibly special little town. It really, really is, Adam. It's, it's always had a very special place in my heart. I first visited Buckestrom in January of 2012, and I just finished my honours year. I'd had a really, really busy um, year, and I'd only really started keeping a life list during um, my honours year. So despite being a bird of my entire life, I, I didn't have a very big life list when I went to Buckestrom for the first time. I was sort of in the mid-300s, and I came away from that weekend hitting the 400 mark with the most amazing denims busted on the Amersfoort Road, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. But ever since that trip, I fell in love with the little town. It's so unique and full of character. And I try and make an annual pilgrimage to Buckestrum every single year. And obviously, working for BirdLife, that's become a little bit easier to do. But I absolutely love that little town. And I hope that after this podcast, many more people will get to go and experience some of its amazing charm and magic. I think, Melissa, what you're saying is so right. I can almost guarantee if someone listens to this podcast and I make a plan to go to Vakastrum after all this lockdown stuff and that, you go there and you leave Vakastrum and when you leave Vakastrum, you're almost planning your next trip back. It's such a special place. I really love it. Absolutely. So before we speak about the amazing birding in and around the town, I want to just ask what makes this area so important in terms of conservation? Yeah, so Vakastrum is in the heart of our grasslands, important bird and biodiversity area. So for those who haven't heard of IBAs before, they're designated areas across South Africa and the world um, that are really important for conserving our, particularly our birds, but just general biodiversity. And now South Africa's grasslands are very, very unique. They cover approximately a third of our country, but within them, they hold some of the most important strategic water source areas. So they provide over 50% of South Africa's um, water supply. They also contain a whole plethora of unique biodiversity. So animals that are found nowhere else in the world are hosted in the grassland biome and Buckestrom in particular is home to many of these endemic species. And I know we're going to be touching on a lot of those later on in this podcast. And it's really, Buckestrom has been a, an almost a heartland for conservation in South Africa. Several of our big NGOs have had projects running there for many, many years, including the likes of WWFSA. Um, EWT has had their crane conservation program there for many years. And of course, BirdLife South Africa has the Buckestrom Tourism and Education Center based in the town of Buckestrom. And our center manager, Christy Garland, who lives there, 
does a phenomenal job of really promoting bird conservation and environmental education out of that center. So Vakastrum is really a special place when it comes to conserving um, the most important grasslands in South Africa. And we're very lucky to, to have a foot in that town to be able to do what needs to be done to protect these species. So Melissa, we're going to do a couple of routes around Vakastrum. And for those who are listening, I just want to just give a shout out. A book I've been using in preparation for this podcast is this African Bird Finder book, a great book to get, great resource. And we're going to try and make it as as easy as we can. So I really encourage you to get a map in front of you. And if you follow the maps along, you'll see exactly where we're talking about. Um, we're going to try and show you some of the special birds and where to find those birds in the area. So a great place to base yourself for the Vakastrum trip is the BirdLife South Africa Vakastrum Tourism and Education Center. The venue has accommodation and conference facilities. It's not a luxury venue. It's not a five-star venue. But let me tell you, the beds were comfortable, had everything you needed. And like you spoke about Christy earlier, Christy is an amazing, amazing host. But what makes this accommodation really great is it's right alongside an amazing wetland with hides. So can you tell us a little bit, about, a little bit more about this venue and what birds one would see if they used this as a base? Yeah, so the Vakastrum Centre was purchased back in 1999. And after some renovations, it was officially launched in the mid-2000s. And its initial lifespan was really to act as a training facility for our successful community guide program. So some of you may have um, heard of the BirdLife South Africa Community Guide Program, where we train local South Africans to become really good community guides in their local patches and they go out and assist birders to find some of the most sought after special species for the different areas across South Africa. So from September 2000 to around 2011, that was really the main purpose of the centre was training up these guides and doing a lot of environmental education work. Once the guide training program petered out a little bit and some of our, our guides were established and the project moved more towards sort of supporting them in their roles as guides. The centre was opened up to a more sort of ecotourism role. And so this allowed us to develop the accommodation, which Adam has mentioned. It's not fancy, but it's clean and it's simple and it's exactly what anybody needs for a good long weekend. There's dormitories, there's also um, secluded self-catering units where you can do what you need to do. And of course, there's also a campground. So for those of you who like to uh, adventure in your tents, you can also stay there and camp in the grounds of the Vakastrum Center. But the beautiful hides and the property itself is really just a, a stunning place to bird. There are a number of little trails that have been cut through the, the long grasslands that, that are found along the edge of the wetland. And as Adam mentioned, you can go down to a number of different hides, which give you great vantage points um, into the wetlands themselves. And species like red-chested flufftail are regularly heard not so often seen, but if you're lucky, you might might catch a glimpse of them. And Buckstrom was was and is still home to the white winged flufftail, and we're hoping to do some more work in that area to try and uh, get a, a new record of the white winged flufftail for Buckstrom. It's been a while since anybody picked them up there, so our new project manager, Dr. Carl Lloyd, is going to be doing some work in the upcoming season to just reaffirm that Buckastrum is still hosting this really critically endangered threatened wetland rallied. But the property also hosts a number of great species. I've regularly seen secretary bird, gray crowned crane and African marsh harriers all flying over the, the center area and the grasslands that are adjacent to the center itself. So even if you just want to go and, and hang out somewhere beautiful and quiet, I highly, highly recommend staying at the Buckastrum Center. And around the town, there must be some other places to do birding. What other suggestions would you give around the town? 
Yeah, absolutely. So if you are staying at the center and you turn right back towards Folksrist, the very first dirt road to your right again is the Odastasi dirt road. And that's one of my absolute favorites. Um, it's a nice quiet little dirt track, um, runs parallel to some of the, the train tracks that run along around Vakastrum. But you can run into birds like red, red-winged Franklins, blue cranes, also had southern bald ibis foraging along there. And at the end of that road, it takes you onto the Amersfoort Road, which is a massive bridge across the wetland itself. And you can spend a lot of time birding on that. Um, it's quite a nice wide road. So there's good shoulders for you to park your cars and keep out of the way of the traffic. But it gives you a great vantage point into the wetland itself. And you can spend absolute hours watching birds like purple swamp hen, African rails, and several of the crake species moving across the wetland. So those are two of my sort of preferred areas to go birding in the town itself. I think what's interesting also about the town is you go into the town at half past eight at night and it's like everybody's in bed already. <laughs> it was quite interesting yeah. compared to staying in a city. Yeah, and no, a definitely small town uh, living early to rise, early to bed. <laughs> I think another thing about the town, which is really great, is it's 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 quite a safe town, and that's really it's uh, you know for us in South Africa, it's great to go to a place which is relatively safe. I think that's another thing which is a big plus for Vakastrum. It's just the safety factor. It's uh, beautiful from that perspective. Yeah, and everyone is so friendly. I mean, everybody that drives past you gives you a wave. Um, it just is a real sense of community, and I think the people who live in Vakastrum really, really love their town, and you you get a real sense of that when you move through there. But I think just also on a side note, um, with, it, with it being such a small town, if I remember correctly, the petrol station, it's not open 24 hours. So if you decide to do an early, early morning drive out of the town, you have to really make sure that the day before you fill with petrol. It's not like a city where you can fill 24 hours at that petrol station. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's always good to check in with the locals and just uh, find out what operating hours are happening on that day. <laughs> Otherwise, try and fill up in Folksrisk before you get to Vakastrum itself. Okay, so you wake up early. Obviously, if you're doing birding, you've got to make a good cup of coffee. You had a good cup of coffee, had an early breakfast. So let's chat about some of the routes that you could explore. Let's take one of the routes. Firstly, we're going to take a drive towards Amersfoort. As you head out of the town on the road to Amersfoort, you're going to take a left on the road towards Forksfrist. This is about nine kilometers out of town. So let's talk about uh, this 12 kilometer stretch between the turnoff to Forksfrist and the T-junction to Weitgelegen. Yeah, so that's, it's an amazing stretch of road and uh, one that I've spent numerous hours slowly combing the grasslands, trying to spot a hint of movement or hear any sort of bird song to try and pick up the, the hidden treasures that those grasslands often conceal. Um, as you start, uh, start on that road, you'll, you'll come to a few rocky slopes that sort of break between the, the different grassy plains. And those rocky slopes are really important. Um, they're not heavily bouldered. They sort of have large, large rocks scattered across them. And if you look very carefully between some of those rocky um, boulders, you'll be able to see coveys of grey-winged Franklin. And if you listen carefully overhead, you might hear things like wing snapping cysticulars calling. And obviously, if you keep driving, you'll start getting to the slightly more open grassy areas. And that's where you really need to keep your ears and your eyes open for birds like your blue corons and the denim's bustards. Despite being really big birds, those corons and bustards can blend in so well into those grassy areas, particularly if you're there in the peak of summer when the grass has really gotten long. And those birds are very good at just sort of dropping down into the grass and disappearing. So it's so important that when you're moving along in these grassland areas, keep your ears and your eyes open. 
There's also amazing birds like blue cranes and secretary birds that are marching across the grasslands looking for prey. And it's a really good stretch to start connecting with birds, um, your little LBJs in the area. So things like your spike-heeled larks and your red-capped larks will often be on the edges of the roads. And um, so always keep a loose eye just on those, those sort of road verges because the little brown jobs do tend to hang along there where the seeds are getting knocked off by the moving cars. And you'll also run into the, the very generic African pipit. People always tear their hair out with pipits, but as Fancy says, nine out of 10 times, you're gonna have an African pipit in front of you, not one of the other cooler pipit species. Um, but it's always good to connect with those common, um, its old name was the grass felt pipit. So it really is at home in those grassland areas. And one of the important things to also keep your eye out for, we were talking about habitat diversity earlier. When you're driving along that road, you're gonna to come to a few small drainage lines or seep wetlands along the edges of the roads. And a good way to pick these up is you'll see the nests of the golden crowned bishops um, sort of attached onto the barbed wire fences that cut across these um, drainage lines and these seeps. And if you listen really carefully, you might hear the very, very high trill of the pale crowned cysticulars, which are a very special cysticular to, to connect with in these um, high altitude CP wetlands. So really good species to get onto. They're difficult to see and you often hear them when they're way up in the sky. But if you're patient and you keep watching, you'll occasionally catch them as they're dropping down from their big display calls. And of course, summertime is full of summer migrants. You get the most amazing ammo falcons and banded martins hovering over the grasslands. Um, the grasslands really do come alive in those summer months. So those are some of the amazing birds that you can connect with along that road. Um, there's so much to see, but you really need to keep your eyes and your ears open. Otherwise, you can very easily miss things. Just also, um, Melissa, in terms of the, you spoke about the wing snapping. I know you also get the, the class uh, sticulars up there. What are some tips that possibly give to find these birds? Because I've always struggled to find them. And since I've seen them up at Buckerstrom, you know, I've realized in the right habitat, they run a lot more than, than people think. So what are some tips in terms of finding these two, the wing snapping in the cloud? What, what are some tips you can give? For sure. So, so your, they're both cloud scraping cysticlers, which really does tell you that they like to hang out in the upper reaches of the sky and don't like to come down too often, at least not in any way that you'll, you'll see them well. But really, my best advice is um, get hold of Fancy Peacock's LBJ book. Fancy does an amazing job of breaking down the, the sort of specific things to look for when you're trying to ID these cysticlers. So um, your wing snapping in particular likes to, to be high up um, in those really high altitude grasslands um, where there's a bit of a rocky ridge and your cloud cysticlers tend to be in the slightly more open grassier plains. But when it comes to cysticlers, if you don't know the calls, you really are wasting your time. Um, my best advice for anyone trying to tackle cysticlers is learn those calls, use the mnemonics to try and help you remember what they're saying when. And if you can really get on top of those, those different cysticlar calls, it'll just make it that much easier to try and ID them. When they're down on the ground, they look super similar and it can be really, really tough to try and tease them apart. So get on top of their sort of specific habitats and learn those calls. And that's the easiest way to start teasing apart your cysticlers. Oh, thanks so much. And just on a side note, if I get the pronunciation of in these Afrikaans signing names, please forgive me, it's quite difficult. <laughs> okay, so then we're gonna get to this T-junction, which is signposted Beitgelechen you're going to turn right to the T-junction and you're going to drive along the road. Um, what do you expect to see along this piece road? I know you're going to eventually get to a seasonal wetland called the Fickland Pan, which apparently is really good for birds in the right season. Yes, so this is a, a very well visited road um, and for good reason. 
Um, there's some nice general grassland birds, so the likes of your anteating chats, Cape Longclaws, um, and obviously the, the target bird that everyone is looking for when they start heading down this road is really the endemic Rudd's lark. Um, they're an endangered species. And Fickland Pan, um, the area around Fickland Pan itself, as well as the, the community-run concession at Fickland Pan, is one of the most reliable places to find Rudd's lark. Um, in the grasslands. And so it's become a really famous little site where people go to see these red lark. They like really short um, grass. And so the, the way that Fickland Pan is grazed is really good for them. And they've been very successful at keeping their red larks around. But when you're out there, you can run into species like common quail, yellow-breasted pipits, which I know we're going to talk about in a bit more detail later on. And the pan itself is really great because it's got all sorts of species like um, great crested, black necked and little grebe. So all three species of grebe. You can also see makoa duck there as well as southern pochards. And South, South African shell ducks also frequently show up there. I would recommend bringing a scope with you if you do decide to go down to the pan because the birds can be quite far away. But um, when you're in Fickland Pan itself, it's just a great patch of really nice pristine grassland to go and bird in. And I really do encourage everybody to stay on the tracks. Um, unfortunately, if you drive off-road at Fickland Pan, you might crush some of the nesting birds that are all through that area. So please really do try and stay on those tracks and keep an eye out for mouse-like movement because ruds tends to keep very low um, and you just see their little heads moving between the, the grass tufts. So you've got to really go slowly and scan in between every single little grass tuft that you see. And as soon as you find that movement, you're onto the money. And like you said, to get into the pan, you have to pay to get into the pan. How much How much does that cost? Sure. Offhand, I think if I remember correctly, it's about 25 rand or so. It might have gone up a little bit, um, but it's it's not a huge amount of money. And it, it's such a great initiative where the local family who owns that property is doing great work to keep their grasslands in good condition for these birds. And by birders coming and supporting them, it just keeps that whole model going where our Rudd's Lark and a lot of the other grassland specials that also co-occur there are protected going forward. So I do encourage everybody to, to support that initiative. We got the Rudd's Lark there and it takes a lot of patience. We walked and we yes. walked and we walked. Lucky was with us, the, the guide, and we just kept walking and walking and walking. Eventually, we, we kind of made a straight line and walked across and all keeping our eyes open. And all of a sudden, like you said, there's this, this little mouse-like movement there. And yeah, we saw it for about, probably about 15, 20 minutes. It was just showing and, and quite relaxed in our presence. It wasn't too worried mm. about us being around it. It was frustrating finding it, but when you find that it's just like really a, a really special moment and a, a stunning little bird. Yeah, they really are. I mean, they've got those big bubble heads and they really are the bubble-headed lark, but uh, very, very special birds to, to connect with. So we're going to get back onto the road and when you get up the road, there's going to be a road that turns towards Buckerstrom. Don't take that road. Instead, keeping, keep on heading up the road that heads northeastwards and you're going to climb um, up a ridge. And what species could one encounter in this, in this area here? Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, um, ridges are really important. They're almost these great um, islands for some of the, the less grassland dependent species. So you're going to get birds that really enjoy rocks. And a prime example of that is the ground woodpecker. So they love nesting in the little crevices and holes that rocky ridges produce. And if you get there really early in the morning, you'll often find a little ground woodpecker family group sitting on top of rocks, sunning themselves. And it's quite a sight to behold. You'll also get species like the endemic Buff Street 
chat and also the sentinel rock thrush. And if you're, if you're driving along and you hear a very long drawn out whistle, that's likely an eastern long-billed lark. All of these birds need those rocky areas to, to really survive. They don't enjoy just plain grassland. They like having the, the rocks there to help them forage and look for little insects tucked underneath all of those rocky crevices. I think just also another, just a practical note, when you head out birding in the morning, I think what we were surprised with is how far you actually end up traveling. These little routes take quite a bit of time and you travel quite far. So mm. I think just make sure in the morning that you have petrol in the car or diesel in the vehicle or whatever. I think it's it's really important because you do travel quite a bit and it, you can be out for the whole day sometimes also. And you don't want to have to you know have the tank towards empty and have to head back to Vakastrum when you, you know, halfway through the day and you're getting some good birding. Absolutely. And they aren't really uh, convenience stores anyway. So make sure that you're well stocked with snacks and good hydration and uh, be prepared for a long day out, but a really good day out. So once you get to the T-junction of the Amersfoort Vakastrum Road, should one head straight back to Vakastrum or is it worth turning left but towards Amersfoort and burning a bit more? Is there any, are there any specials around there that are worth seeing? Definitely. So um, you'll definitely keep running into a lot of the grassland specials that we've already touched on. But if you get close to the little town of Dachakral, that is one of the last remaining spots where um, our guides are regularly finding the endangered endemic Goethe's lark. Um, unfortunately, we've seen mega declines in Goethe's lark and they're not turning up in some of the former known strongholds. So we're really having to um, eke out these last few remaining spots where we know we're still getting the birds and Dachas Kral is one of them. So if you've got the time to head out that way, you won't be disappointed along the way. You can run into yellow-breasted pipit, blue corans with the, the sort of gem of Goethe's lark right at the end. That's one of the routes we can take. And obviously, well, let's just chat on the road back to Vakastrum. What could one expect to see? Yeah, so as, you, as you're traveling back towards Vakastrum, you're going to Carry on keeping your eyes peeled for the likes of secretary birds and blue cranes, but you could run into some amazing harriers. So your Montagues harriers, your black harriers, the raptor diversity is great. Obviously along the telephone poles that are still strung up along the sides of the road, um, keep an eye out for the, the Cape crow nests. The Vakstrom crows do this really interesting thing where they build their nests out of barbed wire fragments. And so you might find a really strange scraggly barbed wire shaped nest along the one or two of the telephone poles. Um, and that's, that's thanks to our, our Cape crows that are in the area. Um, Southern bald ibis always foraging out in the, the mowed fields. So there's just so many great special species to run into along that road. So you're probably going to do, do that route. That's probably like a full day's worth of birding, I mean, if, I, if I understand correctly, if you do it properly. Definitely, especially if you throw in that wetland at the, the sort of start of that road, um, that can really eat into your time. So I would recommend heading out to the, the grassland routes early on in the morning, get those endemic specials, and then finish up your day back at the wetland um, where things are still a little bit more active in the afternoons. But that's definitely a full day of birding right there. So I just want to say a big thank you to all the guests that have been on tonight's show. And I also want to just say a big thank you to everyone that takes the time to listen to the Birding Life podcast. Don't forget that all the links that were mentioned tonight, as well as necessary email addresses and contact details for guests, are in the comments section of this podcast. Please can I ask everyone that is listening to the show to do me two things. Firstly, can you hit the follow button on whichever platform you are listening to the show on? And secondly, could you please rate the Birding Life podcast? I would really appreciate if you could also share this podcast as far and as wide as possible.
Don't forget to also follow The Birding Life on Instagram and Facebook. I really do appreciate everyone that takes the time to interact with these accounts. So until next time, be blessed and happy birding.